It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the horrific realities of Putin's war of choice in Ukraine. For days, we've talked about the Russian dictator's increasing isolation, his strategic miscalculations, and his stomach-churning appetite for indiscriminate murder. Well, tonight, we want to show you what Putin's war actually looks like. And I, I do want to warn you that it is graphic and heartbreaking. Early today, Putin's forces bombed a maternity hospital in Mariupol, wounding 17 people. This is what it sounded like. The Russian airstrike was so powerful that the ground shook for miles. It blew out the windows and left the newborn intensive care unit in ruins. Look at these images. These are the victims of Putin's war. It's the wailing mother clutching her bewildered child. It's a heavily pregnant woman bleeding, being carried out on a gurney and rushed to safety. It's the innocent children sobbing and terrified that the Russians would return. This is how Putin chose to end the second week of his invasion, and it drew immediate condemnation. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson called it depraved, and White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said it was a barbaric use of force. In a video late today, President Zelensky called it an evil war crime. New satellite imagery from Maxar appears to show the extensive damage that the Russian invasion forces have inflicted so far on civilian infrastructure in Mariupol. The images show how they've laid waste to residential homes, apartment buildings, and grocery stores. And if that's not ghastly enough, the Associated Press took these images of mass grave sites dug on the outskirts of Mariupol because they cannot conduct proper burials due to the bombings. The Russians, of course, denied bombing the maternity hospital, claiming they do not fire on civilian targets. Instead, they continue to use propagandistic euphemisms about disarming Ukraine and dislodging Nazi leaders, none of that being true. My colleague Richard Engel spent a day in a Kiev hospital talking to victims of Russia's attacks. He asked a doctor about Russia's denials. Vladimir Putin says that the Russian army is not bombing civilians, that no lie. civilians are being hurt. It's a lie. <laughs> it's an obvious lie. Meanwhile, today, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, arrived in Turkey ahead of planned talks with his Ukrainian counterpart. It should come as no surprise that the Russian delegation to the peace talks has refused to concede anything. And Vice President Kamala Harris landed in Warsaw for the first leg of her trip to meet with regional allies. Part of that will include cleaning up a diplomatic spat over supplying fighter jets to Ukraine. Today, the Pentagon said the U.S. does not support the Polish plan to transfer the jets. And joining me now from Lviv, Ukraine, is NBC News correspondent Cal Perry. Um, the, the view from Lviv tonight, Cal, give us what that is, particularly given that now it is pretty clear that the U.S. did not and does not support this plan to provide fighter jets by way of this circular route through uh, via Poland. Yeah, 
it's the the jets that Ukraine uh, desperately needs that nobody wants to touch, um, right? Nobody wants to be the ones handing over the jets. Um, and so for now, it seems to be on hold. The view from here um, is watching that video coming out of those port cities, uh, you know, a, a, a city of Mariupol where you have those mass graves, where you have the deputy mayor saying at least 1,200 civilians have been killed. He thinks that's a low estimate, that it could be three times uh, the number of people. And, and it's not just that city. There are a half a dozen cities or so that have been under siege now for six, for seven days, places without power, without water, without heat. And it's all the more depressing when you factor in that we expected this. We expected hospitals to eventually be hit, if not targeted. Um, It was one of the first things I heard when we got here to Lviv. We went and did a story about a hospital uh, preparing for uh, wounded Ukrainian soldiers and the staff there, you know, asking us not to give up the location or the name of the hospital because they were convinced sooner or later this would happen. The other thing that is happening here in the Western part of the country is people are turning their attention towards these nuclear sites. Our viewers will remember last week there was this firefight at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Uh, It's the largest uh, nuclear power plant in all of Europe. It, It provides power to a quarter of Ukraine, and it has been taken off the grid. It has been removed from the IAEA uh, monitoring system, as has Chernobyl. Um, Add to that, there from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Russia, and we're hearing from the White House from Jen Psaki, there is a growing concern that Russia is going to carry out a false flag attack using chemical weapons. You couple those two things together, you marry them with the video that is coming from these port cities, and you're going to have an increase of this wave of human traffic headed in my direction and headed to Poland. The knock-on effect is going to be more people are going to hit the roads in a country that cannot take this level of refugees, cannot take this level of internally displaced peoples. We heard uh, from the mayor of Lviv yesterday that this city is starting to burst at the seams, that it just cannot take the humanitarian crisis that is underway. And again, with the news that we're getting tonight about these nuclear sites, with the news about Chernobyl, Chernobyl is one of those words I can say, and everybody around the world knows what I'm talking about, you are going to see the situation continue to deteriorate, Joy. Terrifying. Awful. Um, Thank you so much for covering this for us, Cal Perry. Stay safe. Thank you very much, my friend. Appreciate you joining us now. Our two members of the Ukrainian parliament, Oleksandra Ustinova and Jean Belenuk, who is also an Olympic gold medalist. Thank you both for being here. Where to begin? Um, I'll start with you, MP uh, Ustinova. What we're seeing out of Mariupol, the, the idea that Hospitals where children and pregnant women um, were being treated are being bombed. Apartment buildings being leveled. Um, What do you make of the Russians or the Kremlin, I should say, continuing to deny that they're hitting civilian uh, buildings and hospitals, et cetera? You know, I would start with probably rephrasing your question is it's not a whether we expected this from Putin or not. The question is, how long do the Western are going to watch this genocide uh, and this execution of Ukrainians till they close the sky? Because if we do not go fly zone, or at least the air defense, this will continue until he gets all of the Ukrainians dead. Because he, he has already been talking about the total demonstration of the Ukrainian nation, which means probably 40 million of Nazis in Ukraine, and then they're all dead. There would be no total denazification. These are war crimes that uh, he's committing in the center of Europe. 
And if we do not get the protection right now of our sky, if there is no at least uh, the humanitarian airlift corridor that can protect these people, these pregnant, these children of being shot, shelled, it's going to continue. And you should understand that he is now using the civilian population as a human shield for his army. Because he knows if he doesn't let these people out of the cities, and Ukraine tried to evacuate people from other cities, this will be a human shield for his army that will continue this mascara. Everybody watches 24-7 on the TV. Uh, John, um, MP Belenyuk, um, I mean, two years ago, you were uh, competing in Greco-Roman wrestling and winning medals. I believe you won a gold medal. Um, there you are. There is a picture of you. And, and what a change to your life now. Talk to us about what you're experiencing and, and what you would want to say to the U.S. administration. Um, Vice President Kamala Harris is traveling in the region to talk to regional leaders. Um, what would you want to say um, to U.S. officials right now that they have essentially said that they are not in favor of transferring these fighter jets? Yes, uh, the Alexandra um, right on one hundred percent because we we need to help. Uh, we need uh, to close the sky about Ukraine because aggressor every day bombed our uh, cities. Uh, you see these pictures, and you must understand uh, uh, they kill us every day. They destroy our infrastructure. They kill our children. Uh, they kill uh, our uh citizen that's why we need to protect us we do everything for protect but uh, we need to help from nato from uh, us uh, from uh, europe uh, because uh, it's cruel time uh, i win a gold medal uh, this uh, last summer but now i think only for keep my uh, country and uh, protect uh, our uh, our civilization, our nation, because uh, Russian uh, want to kill us, Putin crazy. I don't know how I can uh, describe this situation. And, and to, to to stay with you for just a moment, I think a lot of people don't realize that there is a lot of diversity inside of Ukraine. I mean, maybe not as much as we have in the United States, but the fact that you are there. Do you, what do you make of the stories of the differences between the way people are being treated at the borders as they're trying to escape? As Have you heard any feedback that people are being treated differently when they try to flee based on their color of their skin? I uh, know this situation, but I... I am a famous Ukrainian. I am a member of Ukrainian parliament. And you know, uh, Russian propaganda do everything about uh, about uh, gu guilty our country uh, in racism. It's not not a true because I'm a, uh, uh, Ukraine give me everything for uh, for my life and. Uh, I know Ukrainian is very, very um, tolerant uh, country, and uh, we don't uh, don't support racism here. That's one hundred percent. You know that's why 
now it's a terrible time. Now it's uh, uh, a, a lot of problem, and uh, I know the, this situation with uh, uh, African um, um, students. I know this, but uh, it's uh, uh, we need to. Um, my sorry, my English not so good. That's know? okay. Uh, but I, I, I do my best for this type of situation. Yes, and uh, but Russian propaganda works very good and uh, show it's n- not not true about Ukraine a lot. You know. Yeah. That's why we need to help from US. US we need to close the sky about Ukraine because it's a, a really big problem to us. Uh, every time our city bombed from the sky uh, and uh, our children, our uh, citizen, civil citizen, um, kills every day, every hour, you know. Indeed. Well, your your uh, English is much better than my Ukrainian, so I will say that you're doing far better than I am with this. Um, and uh, MP Ustinova, I will ask you about this refugee crisis. We have now, at least the latest numbers, and they're probably low, um, are more than two million Ukrainians are on the move, either internally displaced or externally displaced. Just as somebody who is a member of the government there— How helpful have neighboring countries been in terms of where people are going to be able to stay? Because what we know about refugee crises in the past is that people can't turn around and go home anytime soon. We don't know how long this is going to last. What provisions are there for Ukrainians who are being forced to leave Ukraine uh, into neighboring countries? Are you confident that they're going to be okay, that they're going to have enough uh, resources, that they're going to be well taken care of? Give us sort of the latest in terms of the refugee crisis. And that the, the majority of these people of the country, and we're talking mainly about children and women, because men yeah. uh, between 18 and 60 are not allowed because of the martial law country. So these people were put in their houses, of their homes, just because uh, we have our cities shelled and bombed. And unfortunately, uh, we understand that this, it looks like it's going to be a long, a long process. It's not going to be for a week, as we hoped, or even a month. And a lot of these people are dreaming about dreaming to come back home because to be a refugee for the rest mm-hmm. of your life, or even for years, having a small kid and looking up and no place to stay, it's unbelievable right now here in the 21st century in the center of Europe. So mm-hmm. uh, we had, like, let's say this, our neighboring countries has been very helpful, especially mm-hmm. Poland, Slovakia, Romania. They've been accepting these people. They yeah. have support. Uh, they have food. But understand, this is a short-term uh, solution this country mm-hmm. can provide. We cannot just relocate. It's going to be more million of people just to and solve this issue. Yeah, we should understand indeed. that we just, if we protection of our sky and provide Ukraine with more weapons, we can get these people back to their houses. We yeah. just need to get to kick Putin's sorry, out of Ukraine, to get his out. And if we do that, these people would be home, would be safe there. And that's why I'm saying, if we do not want humanitarian crisis, we need to protect the Indeed. Um, your pleas are very well heard. Um, Ukrainian members of parliament, Oleksandra Ustinova and Jean Belenyuk, thank you both so much. Please stay safe.
Still ahead on the readout, the Ukrainian president emerges as the Churchill of the digital age, rallying his people against the Russian onslaught. One of his former advisors joins us next. Plus, there are still more questions than answers about the long-term effects of this invasion on international relations. Is this the start of a new economic Cold War? And later, some of Ukraine's biggest ballet stars are taking up arms to defend their country. I love to perform on stage, to travel, to come back to ballet, she says. But the most important thing now is for the war to end with our victory. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has emerged as a sort of Winston Churchill for the social media age, countering Vladimir Putin's lies in a series of defiant social media videos, refusing to leave his country, boosting Ukrainians' morale and rallying international support, saying he and his people are not afraid. His rise from comedian to wartime president has been remarkable. And by standing up to Putin and his lies about supposedly denazifying Ukraine while becoming the public face of the Ukrainian resistance, as Gal Beckerman points out in The Atlantic, Zelensky, who is Jewish, has captivated the world while offering a reminder of the region's scarred history of anti-Semitism. It's also a reminder of how far Ukraine has come. And I should warn you that some of the following images are graphic. It's been barely over a century since more than a thousand widespread pogroms killed more than 100,000 Jews in present day Ukraine. And while on the eve of World War II, Ukraine was home to one of the largest Jewish populations in all of Europe. After the actual Nazi army invaded in 1941 with their campaign of extermination, more than an estimated one and a half million Jews were murdered, including the massacre at Babin Yar where more than 100,000 Jews were executed. The memorial to that atrocity was the site of a Russian attack just last week. And as Ukraine's first Jewish president, whose grandfather fought the Nazis with the Red Army, losing three of his siblings, Zelensky has used video and social media to personally and forcefully rebut Putin's surrealist history. Channeling anger on Twitter, asking the world, what is the point of saying never again for 80 years in the wake of the strike near Babin Yar? and saying it's Putin's war that is pure Nazi behavior in a call with American Jewish leaders this week. He pressed that point again in an interview with Sky News, accusing other countries of being indecisive on his calls for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. I'm joined now by Igor, Igor Novikov. You can't decide. If you are united against the Nazism and this terror, you have to close. 
Not me. Don't wait me asking you several times, a lot, million times, close the sky. Believe me, if, if it's prolonged this way, yes, you will see they will close the sky, but will lose millions of people. I am joined now by Igor Novikov, former advisor to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Um, thank you so much for being here. I am going to hereby endorse your Batman T-shirt. I think that is absolutely great. Um, and I have to ask you about this guy. Uh, people have tweeted that, you know, Volodymyr, Volodymyr Zelensky becoming president is sort of rather like if Stephen Colbert or Jon Stewart became president uh, of, of a country, right? And I have no doubt that either of them would step right up to the damn plate if that happened and they were faced with some sort of an invasion because they are patriotic, good people. Is, it, is, it, is that the way that you understand him? Because I think the idea that he was a comedian throws some people off when they see just how, you know, to use a, a not-so-TV term, badass that he is. Well, hi, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm surprised you didn't mention Jimmy Fallon. I mean, uh, but... And look, Jimmy Fallon. Uh, <laughs> and Jimmy Fallon. So, look, President Zelensky, first and foremost, is a human being. You know, he's not a politician. I keep repeating that, but it's true. I mean, the world now is kind of interested in having that new sincerity, having real people do real things. So real emotions, real mistakes. I mean, that's what the world needs. I mean, they're tired of portraits and bronze statues and, you know, just people being hypocrites and fake. So President Zelensky is very real. So that's like, you know, the first kind of factor that's helping, you know, his image at the moment and helping Ukraine. Secondly, President Zelensky is a collective portrait of, you know, the Ukrainian people. Um, anyone who's familiar with Ukraine knows everyone is like that, you know. So put anyone in his place and you'd get the same thing. You mean, I mean, like people are returning to Ukraine to fight instead of fleeing, you know, men are returning. Uh, look, I'll, I'll give you one private example. Um, we kind of... Uh, we're a small village of a country, so everyone knows everyone. And whenever something happens, you, you get those phone calls asking for help. Uh, most of the phone calls I got was, uh, were from men actually asking me to help them join the army because they wouldn't take them. I mean, the, you know, the battalions were full. I mean, that kind of gives you an idea of, you know, what Zelensky is like, what Ukraine is like. Now, two very important points. First of all, this is the first social media war. I mean, we mm. remember, you know, the second war in Iraq and, you know, the first TV war. 9-11 uh, happened live on TV. Now, this is the first, like, social media, like Facebook and Twitter war. Uh, so, you know, everything is happening live. Everyone is participating in the uh, storytelling. And obviously, the world needed its John McClane, you know, from Die Hard. And President Zelensky is exactly that. What makes me really worried, though, is the fact that the very fact that it's a storytelling war and a propaganda war, and we're actually, you know, the whole world is fighting a country that's created, uh, that's already created an alternate reality. So there are no more fakes in Russia. I mean, they live in a completely parallel universe. Mm. Um, we are playing on their playing field. We're kind of playing by their rules. So instead of, you know, listening to what President Zelensky has to say, we are discussing who President Zelensky is mm. and, you know, the emotion that's surrounding him. And that's incredibly dangerous because, look, first of all, this is not a reality TV show. It's a real mm -hmm. world. The, these are real deaths. I mean, yesterday in Mariupol, we had a six-year-old girl die of dehydration. 
whilst the city was blockaded by the Russians. You know, today they bombed the maternity ward full of pregnant women and toddlers and children. You know, uh, like, look, I'll give you one example. I'm a father of two girls. Uh, these are the shoes of my two and a half year old. I mean, they would make for a perfect picture of a terrible crime and terrible tragedy, and they'll, they'll be all over the newspapers. I don't want that to happen. You know, I don't want the storytelling. I want action. You know, we need to close the skies. We need to get multinational business out of Russia because, like, look, I'll give you one example. I mean, like, we, we are now trying to talk to international law firms mm -hmm. who haven't even issued statements. Like, White and Case are st still doing business in Russia. It's like doing business with Al-Qaeda after 9-11. You know, it's, it's, it's just unbelievable. So President Zelensky, you know, the, the only thing he, he got out of this for Ukraine, out of this wrong attention, i.e. paying attention to who he is rather than to what he says, you know, he's got that position now to tell the world, like, to name and shame. And, you know, hopefully people will begin listening to him because, you know, what Putin has in mind concerns everyone. Well, and I think you make a really good point. And I think, honestly, his use of social media, the fact that he is very adept at it and in getting his message out and making people pay attention to him, I think is part of the reason that Russia has been so isolated. And I don't know what you make of, of this idea, that it's part of the reason that their propaganda war hasn't worked. First of all, social media makes it clear we can see what they're doing, but also people uh, sort of globally taking sides. Do you think that that has made it I don't know. I, I am surprised, to be honest with you, that even the U.S. administration has not agreed to go ahead and, and accede to his demands for those warplanes. Are you surprised that his ability to move the world in favor of Ukraine has fallen short of being able to get that done? And what would you say to U.S. leaders who are still resisting giving over those warplanes? Well, I do apologize. I might sound harsh, but I think, you know, the situation regarding the warplanes and closing our skies has turned into a Muppet show. You know, uh, there's no other term to describe it. Like, look, uh, unfortunately, at the moment, most people think, you know, that Putin is losing the information war, but he's actually winning it. And let, let me explain to you why. You know, his propaganda and his kind of stream of information and storytelling is not aimed at the Western audience. He couldn't care less about what Europeans think. He couldn't care less about what Americans think. He doesn't even consider us to be people, Ukrainians, right? So, you know, we're back to 1941 in that sense, uh, both physically and mentally and, you know, historically. Um, look, what, what Putin wants, he wants to build a portrait of an enemy, of a collective West as an enemy. And you're actually helping him. You know, you know, now he's trying to kind of to brainwash the people of Russia to accept what comes next. Now, let me tell you what comes next. I mean, it's blatantly obvious. He's not interested in taking Ukraine. He's not interested in policing the Ukrainian nation. What's happening now? He's bombing. He's bombing civilian infrastructure. He's bombing everything to make Ukrainians leave. Now, then Ukraine becomes territory for him to test the Article 5. That's what he's after. Mm. And, you know, when you have to pick between disgrace and war, historically, if you pick disgrace, you, you end up with both in the end. Yeah. So I, I think the West really needs to push back against him. Otherwise, you know, um, you know, the West will lose this fight eventually.
thank you so much for being here. I hope that you will come back. I think that what you've said has been incredibly instructive. I hope that people listen and share what you've said because I think you are, well, clearly, obviously right. Uh, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time thank this you. evening. Thank you. Uh, Igor Novikov, thank you. And up next, Putin says the West's crippling economic sanctions are almost an act of war. So how will Russia respond? And how bad could it actually get? We'll be right back. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Russia is accusing the U.S. of waging economic war in response to President Biden banning Russian oil, natural gas and coal imports to the U.S. The Kremlin says the country will do what is necessary to defend its interests, whatever that means. Meanwhile, amid these historic sanctions, concern is growing for Americans detained in Russia, like Phoenix Mercury Center Brittany Griner, one of the WNBA's most dominant players who's been detained in Russia for weeks and has not been allowed to leave the country. The Russian Federal Customs Service said it discovered cartridges containing hashish oil in her luggage at the airport near Moscow, an offense that could carry a maximum penalty of 10 years in prison. Here's an apparent photo of Griner that was used on Russian TV and is now on their YouTube channel. It includes a track line that, according to one of our Russian translators, says the hope of American female basketball is posing in a police station with a sign with her surname on it. Congresswoman Sheila Jackson-Lee of Texas has called on the Russian government to release Griner, and she joins me now. And I understand, um, Congresswoman, that um, Ms. Griner is originally, I believe, from your district, um, and so you are speaking out on her behalf. I'm wondering if you have heard anything about the situation that she is in now. Um, have you gotten any sort of feedback from the State Department or anywhere else? Well, first of all, Joy, thank you for having me, and thank you for being concerned. Uh, we love uh, Brittany Griner. Family members are there, coaches are there, uh, and just uh, all of her high school friends, of course, and look at her now. Uh, Putin is a baby killer, so it is very difficult to see how he would have compassion uh, for this young woman. Uh, we know that in a few days, uh, we may hear a more detailed account uh, from the State Department because of some procedural matters that have now been cleared up. Uh, we do know that she is detained. But I also know that these allegations are uh, ones that are alleged uh, and they are promoted by uh, Russian officials, Russian officials who know and knew Brittany Griner as a long time a player uh, for their teams and one who's given great joy to the Russian people. That customs agent well knew uh, that he could have uh, 
provided her a temporary suspension uh, out of the country and not able to come back for a period of time, could have confiscated what she had allegedly uh, and sent her on her way. You wonder why she was selected. Um, she's uh, very well known uh, and why at that point in time uh, she had to be selected or had to uh, be uh, examined further. And these particular items that they say that I don't want to believe uh, because I don't believe the representations that they've made and uh, these facts have not been brought to bear to us. But I do know that as an American citizen uh, that she had no reason to be held for this extensive period of time. We do know that there's a, another case that happened and that person was let out in a month. Uh, we see her approaching uh, a month and no uh, evidence of that at this time. So we are concerned. Yeah. She has a number of individuals working for her, including Russian counsel. Uh, I believe it is important for the United States to work for her. And in meeting with the president, I presented him with a letter uh, to help us. And I'm very glad that the State Department and the president is well aware of Brittany Griner. And, and I will note that her, her wife, Sherelle, posted an Instagram um, photo that we can put up just to show thanking everyone for who's reached out. And, and I don't know if you've been with the in touch with the vice president's office, but she is in the region. Um, you've been very vocal. Uh, I, I'm, I'm somewhat surprised that we haven't heard much from any of the Arizona, um, either the United, either United States senators from Arizona have not said much. She does play in Arizona. But I wonder if there's any thought that maybe the vice president, while she's there, may address this in some way. While she's in the region, you know, I don't want to speculate, Joy, but uh, yeah. it is certainly appropriate. Uh, she's obviously there in Poland uh, to deal with the uh, confusion about the MiG fighters and the necessity yeah. of uh, uh, air cover for uh, Ukraine and the request that President Zelensky has made. Yeah. Uh, but I have seen uh, the kind of you, you call them um, sidebar conversations and sure. a sidebar conversation would certainly be appropriate. Uh, and I wouldn't uh, put it past uh, her agenda that that might be raised. But I yeah. think it's important to say that what is happening is that there's Russian counsel giving guidance. And, and I respect yeah. that guidance. But mm -hmm. I believe that the federal government, the United States of America, the president, because there are others being held uh, in Russia and they've been held in such vicious conditions. Uh, their health is deteriorating, uh, such as a young Mr. Reed and others. And the point is, is that. We can't let the brutality of Putin. You know, I started by saying he's a baby mm -hmm. killer. Uh, this is his war. There was no vote for this. He has 6,000 Russians in jail right now. And he mm -hmm. continues to create a World War Three atmosphere in Ukraine. So I think we have to step in uh, and uh, exert our sovereignty over our citizens and demand that they be released and Indeed. get them out of there, if I might say it in that way. Indeed. And I might, I might note that 13,500 protesters thus far have been arrested for um, being brave enough to, to dare to protest against Putin's war of choice. And uh, as you said, war to, that is in, it conduct, in, included killing civilians in hospitals. Uh, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, thank you so much. We really appreciate you. We'll be right back. We have talked a lot over the past few weeks about how Putin is surrounded by oligarchs who profit off of corruption. But some oligarchs are higher up on the kleptocratic food chain than others. And none are as important as Igor Sechin, one of Putin's closest advisors, described in Russian media as Darth Vader and one of the scariest men on earth. Sechin, like Putin, is a former intelligence officer who Putin appointed to run the major oil, Russian oil company Rosneft after his stint as deputy prime minister.
And if he sounds familiar to Americans, it might be because the infamous Steele dossier alleges he promised the Trump campaign's Carter Page lucrative deals for the U.S. if Trump was elected and ended Ukraine-related sanctions on Russia. That information was not confirmed by the Mueller report, but it continues to be a part of the background noise of Trump's Russia-friendly campaign. Sechin, like other oligarchs, was, has been hit by sanctions, with the French government impounding a super yacht they say is linked to him. But while it might be entertaining to watch the seizure of oligarchs' gaudy assets, journalist Tim O'Brien argues that it is nowhere near enough to have an actual impact on Russia. He notes that the truly damaging sanctions against Putin, Sechin, and Russia would be ones that go directly after their piggy bank, Rosneft itself. Energy companies are more central to a country's economic well-being than a collection of yachts and private jets. And yesterday, the U.S. and U.K. took a step in that direction, banning the import of Russian oil. I'm joined now by Tim O'Brien, senior columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, and Uriel Epstein, executive director at the Renew Democracy Initiative. And Tim, I guess your your argument, sort of to boil it down in your article, is don't take their toys, take the sort of take their piggy bank. Please explain. Well, I think you can do both. We have the resources to do both, but I shouldn't. I don't think we should be mistaken that the window dressing that's associated with going after oligarchs' mansions and their yachts and their jets are really the kind of things that are going to put a stranglehold on on Putin or his ability to finance a war or finance an economy that keeps uh, him in a place where he doesn't have uprisings in the streets in Russia. Um, you know, the oligarchs loom large in the Western imagination because during the Yeltsin years, they played a serious role both in the politics and the economic structures of Russia. And they were, uh, for the large, a large number of them were predators. They, they grifted and, and stole state assets. Putin came to power in the economic rubble of 19, that followed the 1998 economic collapse there. And he essentially defenestrated the oligarchs. He, he put a prominent oligarch in jail, Mikhail Khodorkovsky. He exiled others. And the only oligarchs who stayed in place in Russia were those who kowtowed to Putin. And he's kept them on a very short leash. As you noted in the top of your program, Igor Sechin is an exception to the rule there, but only because he's a lifelong um, you know, partner, essentially, both in the intelligence agencies and in politics of Putin. He had no experience running an energy company. Putin, Putin stuck him in Rosneft so Rosneft could be controlled by the Siloviki, the, the, the sort of elite former Russian spies who are close to Putin. And I think the U.S. is is fighting this on two fronts. They are going after the oligarchs, but they really, the real game here is shutting down Russia's access to the financial system, freezing the assets of its central bank, and and stomping down on its energy exports. That's where you're really going to strangle them economically. Yeah. And let me ask you this, Uriel Epstein. There, there is a sense that part of the sort of the gaudiness of these sort of living like czars lifestyle of these oligarchs, et cetera, and Putin himself has almost fooled them. Um, there's a piece by um, Russian foreign minister under Boris Yeltsin. His name is Andrei Kozarev. And he wrote this. And he said this is one of the reasons that um, that Putin overestimated his own military, that the Kremlin spent the last 20 years trying to modernize its military. But much of that budget was stolen and spent on mega yachts in Cyprus. But as a military advisor, you cannot report that to the president. So they report lies to him instead. It's a Potemkin military. Is there a sense that the yachts, maybe they aren't the key to bringing Russia down, but they are the key to bringing Russia's military down because that's what they're spending the money on rather than on building up their actual military? 
Uh, thank you, Joy. Uh, so that's a really interesting thought that I actually hadn't specifically thought about in exactly those terms. But I'll actually disagree a little bit with Tim in that I do believe that sanctions on oligarchs can actually have significant impact. Not because, you know, and, and while conceding that state level sanctions are the ones that are absolutely critical in order to strangle Russia's economic side. But essentially what Putin did when he came to power and he essentially threw away some of the oligarchs was he made a deal with the others that if they backed him, their finances would be safe. What we need to do is we need to make sure that Putin reneges on that deal. And so taking away their money is not just about symbolism, right? I mean, I've seen countries sanctioning Putin and Lavrov, uh, Lavrov being the foreign minister, and those sanctions, of course, are useless, right? Putin doesn't have any money in his own name, really. Instead, he holds money in the wallets of other people, in the wallets of these oligarchs, in the wallets of the, their political leaders. And so it's not about any single oligarch. It's about the entire class. And right now is the moment for us to hit all of them. The time for half measures is, is gone. I mean, we're talking about hitting every single oligarch, everybody in the Duma, the Security Council, the Federation Council, who supported Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And don't just go after them by name. Go after the shell companies that hide their assets. I mean, taking a super yacht here or there is nice, but it's far from enough. And I would go even one step further. You don't just stop the Russian enablers themselves. You cut off Putin's ability to buy politicians in the free world. Literally, Germany's former chancellor, Gerard Schroeder, is in Putin's pocket. He supports the dictator, and we allow him to for the moment. That, that it's people like that who should also be sanctioned. So in, ultimately, these are folks who cannot be allowed to benefit from the free world while attacking its very foundations. And it's our job to convince these oligarchs and other Russian political leaders that they would be better off without Putin than they would be with him. And, you know, that gets to the point, Tim, that, that, that I wanted to come back to is, is the idea here that if you make them unable to enjoy a Western lifestyle that they've become accustomed to, unable to spend money and then make the Russian people unable to even go to McDonald's and go to Netflix and you take away the Western lifestyle and turn uh, the clock back in Russia 40 years, to what end? Is, is there an olig a banquet of oligarchs that have the power to dethrone Putin if they decided to? No, because, you know, Putin, you know, the idea also that, that Putin has money in, in oligarchs accounts offshore, I think that that's never been substantiated. There's been a lot of speculation about how much money Putin has overseas. He's undoubtedly stolen billions. Um, but that's also never been clearly substantiated. Vladimir Putin, anytime he wants, can simply steal money from state controlled companies and any country inside Russia. So trying to sanction oligarchs accounts and the idea that you're going to hit Putin in his wallet ultimately doesn't matter because he can replace those yachts and replace those bank accounts by stealing from state assets. I do think it, most Russians actually don't live a Western lifestyle. Russia suffers through grinding poverty. There's a very small class of people in Moscow who live a Western lifestyle and in St. Petersburg, and in a lot of Russia, it's still desperately poor. You're talking about people not being able to get food and heat for their homes because of yeah. these sanctions. So it will hurt, but it's going to hurt in a very kind of primal way. Not, not being able to go to McDonald's or Gucci, I don't think is where it's going to hurt them. Yeah, it is a fascinating conversation. I wish we had more time. We're going to have to have you guys both back and do a part two of this conversation because I want to keep going. But the clock says I cannot. Tim O'Brien and Uriel Epstein, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, as Ukraine's rich cultural heritage is put on hold, one group of ballet dancers take up arms to join the fight on the front line. Stay with us.
Just a few weeks ago, Ukraine's ballet dancers were performing pirouettes and plies on stages across their country. Now, like thousands of their fellow Ukrainians, some are joining the front lines against Putin's invasion, swapping their ballet shoes for Kalashnikovs. NBC's Aaron McLaughlin brings us their story. They're the butterflies of Kyiv, performing for the final time in France. Back home, their country torn apart by war. Now some of Ukraine's premier ballet dancers have swapped their tutus and slippers for guns and fatigues, putting their life's work on hold to defend their country. Of course I'm scared, says artist Alexei Potyomkin. I'm not a military person, but I couldn't just sit on the sidelines and observe. Just days ago, Alexei was a principal dancer in his prime, now a military paramedic. His life as an artist, a distant memory. I don't even think about ballet anymore, he says. I had two premieres coming before the war. Now it seems like another life, which never existed. Dancer Lesia Verotniuk says art has prepared her for war. Ballet teaches you to have a strong spirit, she says. In 2019, Lesia says her husband died fighting on the front lines in eastern Ukraine. She says she's armed herself to protect her son and country. I love to perform on stage, to travel, to come back to ballet, she says. But the most important thing now is for the war to end with our victory. Across Ukraine, opera houses and theaters are closed to focus on winning Putin's war. Now it's not time for performance on a stage. Now we have a performance on our street. We have blood, we have a bombing. The last time Oleksandr Omoshenko danced, it was the night before the war began. Now he's building anti-tank hedgehogs. Each day that goes by falling further out of shape. A small sacrifice, he says, for his country. I very love my country. We have a beautiful country, we have a beautiful people, and I'm very sad, very angry. Do you think you're going to dance again? Yeah, 100% I go back again. When? I don't know. When it's all finished. I hope it will be soon. The artistic soul of Ukraine is standing by until they've secured their freedom. Aaron McLaughlin, thank you so much. Wow. That is tonight's readout. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.